Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you will help us to be open to all that you desire to say to us through your word. May it be so through the power and grace of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. The book of Job is probably one of the most difficult parts of Scripture for us to understand. People have been trying to grasp its meaning for centuries, and volume upon volume upon volume has been written trying to, to explain all that's going on in this story, and particularly in those opening verses of chapter 1 and chapter 2 as God has this conference with Satan. I'm not sure anyone has actually gotten to the point where they can say, I definitively have nailed it completely. But we make progress, hopefully. It's a tragic tale in many ways, especially these first few verses. As you see Job under the weight of this tremendous suffering of all that he loses and then his own physical health. But the person in this story that tends to be ignored is Mrs. Job. I call her that because we don't know her name. In fact, we don't know much of anything about her. You know, she gets two verses. In chapter 2, verse 9, she speaks. And in chapter 10, she's spoken to. And then she disappears from the scene. Now, people have tended to, um, to look negatively upon her. Augustine said that she was an emissary of Satan. John Calvin says she was a tool of Satan. Both uh, Chrysostom and Thomas Aquinas said that the only reason Satan didn't take her life when he took the lives of the children is so that he could use her against Job later on. I mean, uh, and you have to admit, I mean, she does say to her husband, curse God and die. Just be done with it. Are you still hanging on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Or are you still hanging on to your principles? Curse God and die. Do you still trust God? Curse him and get it over with. It's not exactly the kind of language that we might think is most spiritual to curse God. But you know, I think we forget that she's dealing with a lot of pain herself. She lost 10 children, just like Job did. And they have, she has lost everything. And in addition, she has to watch her husband suffer. She comes out of the house and, she's, and she sees him sitting in a garbage heap, using a piece of broken pottery to scrape the sores on his body. She is frustrated. She is angry. She's upset. She's hurt. She's agonizing, not just about herself, but about her husband. And sometimes in life, sometimes the, the, the deepest pains that we feel are not about what we're experiencing, but about what people we love are experiencing. But it's all wrapped up together as she says to her husband, curse God and die. In some ways, what she says is, is an act of love. 
If she, she believes that, that for some reason God is, is putting this on to her husband. And probably the next step is to take his life anyway. So just get it over with and stop the suffering. Because it's, I can't see you like this any longer. In the painting that's reprinted in your bulletin from the 17th century artist De La Tour. You see, you get a glimpse of, of the compassion that she has for her husband. There is a sense in this picture, a great gentleness as she touches his forehead and looks over his emaciated, diseased body. And I think the artist has captured something of the spirit that I think is in her. The spirit of love and compassion upon her husband and the great agony of soul and spirit that causes her to cry out in anguish, just curse God and die and let's be done with it. Now, it is intriguing that the word she uses, the translated curse, is the Hebrew word barak. And Barak really doesn't mean to curse. It means to bless. Now, I got to tell you, I've been wrestling with that for a number of weeks. Trying to figure out why use that word. There are perfectly good Hebrew words that mean curse. So why use the word that means bless? It's probably 95% of the time or more... Barak means bless. It's the word that's used when God says to Abraham, I am going to bless you. And he says, and through you, I am going to bless the world. It is the word that's used in Aaron's benediction over Israel. May the Lord bless you and keep you. It is a sacred word of God's provision and God's goodness upon his people. So why use that here? Because it's obvious in the context, and it's obvious from Job's response, that she means curse. So why use that word? One theory I had was that maybe we just don't understand what she's saying. Maybe she uses the word bless, and it's, it's, sarcasm, it's sarcasm. And, you know, because we're not there, we're not hearing it, we don't really get the gist of it. And, you know, that happens with us. You, you may be talking face-to-face with someone, and they say something, and the way they, the way they, they look at you, something in their eyes, something in the, the, their mouth, something in about the way they have maybe contorted their face, and you're thinking, is there something going on underneath what you just said? Did I miss something? And, of course, that is even more the case as you start thinking about things that are written down where you have no body language, you have no tone of voice, you can't see the person's eyes. We see it happens in emails, right? You get an email and you read that and you think, are they mad at me? And texting adds to it even more because everything is abbreviated in texting. The summer I texted my brother-in-law and, and I said, so you got any ideas of something we can get my sister for her birthday and he texted me back an idea for a gift and I texted him and said are you are you going to buy that for her and he wrote back and said no I'm getting her something else and so I texted him and said we'll get it but I left the apostrophe out of the word wheel (laughs) and I got this strange text back from him saying okay Because he read, well, get it. (laughs) 
Maybe that's, maybe it's just we just don't understand, but I don't think that's what's going on. I think there is intentionality to using that word because it shocks a Hebrew reader. You got to understand, the Hebrews, words are not just words. Words are alive. Words are living. We we get that. When, When someone looks at you and says, I do, that is more than just a couple of puffs of air. Those are life changing, real, living words. When someone says to you, I hate you, those are not just words, those cut us in the heart. And, on the, and, and at the same time, when someone says, I love you, it changes our whole perspective. That's one of the reasons why, I, as I've said to you at different times, when, when I pronounce the benediction, I love to have you look at me. Is I want to look at you and I want to pronounce these words over you because they're not just words, but they are actually the living blessing of God in your lives. They're real. They're alive. Remember, God, God creates by speaking creation into existence. And to the Hebrew, words have life. They're not just puffs of air. They're not just words printed on a page. They are alive. And this word, Barak, is one of those especially significant living words because it has such sacred meaning for the Hebrews about the blessing of God and everything God wants to do for them as his people. And what God wants to do for the world. And Job's wife takes that word and she twists it. It's almost a double blasphemy. Cursing God is blasphemy. And doing it by by, by twisting a word that means the blessing of God. It's almost a double blasphemy. And she's saying all the promises of God. I'm not buying it. I don't believe it. I think that there is this underlying idea that she is, that she believes what Job's friends believe and often what we believe. That life with God is always about cause and effect. That if you're righteous, you'll be blessed. And if you're wicked, you'll suffer and have loss. And if anything else, this story is reminding us that it's not always that way. But she's still caught in that mindset. And so either Job has to be righteous or God has to be righteous, but it can't be both. So either Job is lying about his righteousness or God isn't faithful and doing what he says he will do. And her words are the agony of spirit. That she would twist that beautiful word just tells us the deep pain and anger and frustration that she feels toward God. And you can understand why people vilify her. But I think there's another side to this. I think we have to give her credit for being honest with God. I think we have to say, look, at least she's honest with God about how she feels. She could have said, well, it doesn't matter, whatever. 
But she's honest with God. And I think God wants us to be honest with him. You talk to any counselor dealing with someone who's struggling with an issue, one of the first things they have to do is to say, let's be honest about how you feel. Let's be honest about what you're thinking. Because without honesty, you just got a wall and you go nowhere. Denial is not the means to resolution and growth. Honesty is. And God is calling his people to be honest with him. If that means we challenge God's character, then so be it. I think one of the reasons we wrestle with honesty is because of our view of God. We have a tendency to view God primarily, despite what we say, as the great judge. You know, we joke about, you better not say that or lightning's going to come out of the sky and hit you. Or some God's going to punish you for that. And, and we joke about it, but the truth is, down deep in our psyche, we believe that. And God is the judge of the earth. But the primary image of God that we see, for, we see which God is revealing himself through the scriptures, is not so much judge as it is father. God continually call, says to his people that he is their father. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, our father. And when, in the few prayers we have recorded that Jesus himself actually prays, most of the time he addresses God as father. When you walk into the courtroom of a judge, you have to be careful what you say. You can't say everything you're thinking or you'll be held in contempt. But with a loving father... You can say what you need to say. Because you know it's safe. It's not about the law. It's about love. You know, most of us live our lives with a filter. Probably a good thing. The times when we don't use a filter and we should, we we lament and we regret that. But we don't have to have a filter with God. We can say to God what we need to say. Even if it's out of a heart of anger and frustration. Because denying how we feel isn't going to help us. Now there's respect. But there's honesty. We want to be honest with God. Because God wants us to be honest with him. And it's not as though God doesn't know what we're thinking anyway, right? It's as though God doesn't know what we're feeling anyway. I remember the day that it just struck me out of the blue... You know, why don't you just tell God what you're thinking because he already knows. Oh, yeah. And you can be honest with a father that who you know loves you. You can, you can express yourself. You can say what needs to be said because it's in the presence of the father who loves us. You see... Job's wife understands the sovereignty of God. I mean, that's really at the heart of why she says what she says. I mean, she's blaming God for what has happened because she believes that God is sovereign, that everything that takes place in the world somehow is his responsibility. And she is right. God is sovereign. And we know, because we have the backstory about God and Satan having this discussion, that she's right. God does allow this to happen. And if God is sovereign, then everything that happens in the world in one way or another comes back to him. He doesn't cause the evil to happen, but he allows it. He gives us free will, and that free will causes us to hurt each other. 
and causes us to live in a fallen world in which diseases attack us and we have accidents and pain comes into our lives. And we only have that because God has given human beings a free will and out of that free will we sin and we continue to sin. And God doesn't cause that, but he does allow it. And she's right. God is sovereign. And ultimately, this is his responsibility. And I know that creates some disturbing images for us about, as we think about life. But if you think the question of why does God allow suffering challenges your faith, how much more to consider that God is not sovereign? That there are things in the world that could happen and God would say, I really want to prevent that, but my hands are tied and I can't. I don't have the power to do it. Because that means some other being is bigger or greater than God is. She gets that. What she wrestles with, what she can't quite grasp, that actually I think Job has a bit of an understanding of is that God is sovereign, but God is also good. And God is just, even when it appears that he isn't. It seems to me if you boil down what she says, she's really saying, God, you let us down. God, God, you you abandoned us. We thought we could count on you, and we can't. And that sounds sounds awfully close to what Jesus cries from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus says, God, why, why have you abandoned me? Why have you let me down? Where are you? Why? And I don't for a minute believe that God actually abandons Jesus on the cross. But I do believe that when Jesus takes upon himself the sins of the world, that means he takes upon himself the guilt of those sins. And we all know the, the emotion, the feeling of, of, of being separated from God because of the guilt of our sin. We understand that feeling. We understand the questions that come to our minds about God's presence with us because of our sin. And Jesus is dealing with that on the cross. And Job's wife is saying, God, you let us down. You abandoned us. Why? I think this is why I think this is why prayer is so important to our lives. One of the great elements of prayer is being honest with God. And through that honesty, letting God speak into our lives in ways that we simply don't give him time to speak in how we tend to live our our lives. That's one reason why I want us to keep doing these prayer vigils is because we need extended time to to quiet ourselves and to get away from all of the demands and the busyness of life so that we can hear God speaking into our pain and our struggles and our confusion and our questions. And most of the time, we simply don't give God the time to do that. 
We don't step away from life enough to condition our ears to hear him saying truth to us. We don't take the time to truly be honest with God, not just theologically, but viscerally. And pouring out our hearts to him and expressing the frustration and the confusion and the anger and the struggle that we may be dealing with, with whatever's going on in our lives. We tend to be, we tend to live in denial. But you take an hour in quiet before God and stuff begins to come to the surface. Stuff that we might rather avoid But God wants us to deal with. And he wants us to be honest with him. And one of the things I love about our prayer room is that in that room, if you haven't been in there, there's a four by eight foot sheet of whiteboard. And and people write on this wailing wall, this prayer wall, the things that, that they want to express to God. And there are times when I go into the prayer room and I spend some time just reading through what people have written. And and it brings me to tears as I realize how much pain is in people's lives. And the struggles and the difficulties that we are going through. But I also rejoice knowing that as people express those concerns to God, as people pour out their hearts to God, in that honesty, God is working healing and grace And things are changing. And honesty isn't the end. It's the beginning. The goal isn't just to be honest. But it is to be honest with God. So much so that we begin to break down the walls and the barriers between us and God. And God can begin to work in us. And heal us. And teach us. And shape us. Underlying our honesty with God really is really is a declaration that somewhere deep inside of us we trust God. We trust Him enough that we'll be honest with Him and He will say, That's okay. That's exactly what I want from you. I love you so much. I know the pain and the struggle that you're dealing with. I understand it. And in your honesty now, we can begin to do something about it. So my question for each of us this morning is, do we trust God enough? Do we trust God even a bit? That we'll be honest with him. And out of that honesty, let him begin to work in our lives like he desires to do. Let's take a moment of silence. And in these moments, to be honest with God.
Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for loving us with such a depth of love that our honesty can never drive you away. But you actually use it to draw us close. Be glorified in our prayers. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.